We just going. Are you just take, uh, Are we just using the same stuff that we use in the basement? Just tiles that are no. They're using that tiles. No, we have those. We have that blue carpet on the room downstairs. We have two pieces that are enough to cover. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna cover this properly with carpet. Yeah. And then that Sunday, if we get it all done, I'll send a text to our shepherds conference group. Just be like, hey guys, we need. A few hands to be you, Roy. Yeah. 
here real quick. I mean, all of us have Put the monitor Where? onto the piano. The piano is going to be up right here. Well, you're saying these are going like right here. Yeah. There. Right, uh, here, right here. Where the. Okay. So I'm going to turn them around where they'll sit up next to Yeah, right this, up against and it. And then slide them over. And then you'll be right here. Yeah, you'll probably have like Nicole and Bethany right there. And then I'll be right, right here. And then we can bring the camera out. Yeah. Here. Bethany's probably too, but yeah, we're basically staring into it. Yeah. Which I look down the whole time anyway. Yeah. I need to be able to look up. Stands down, we can turn them so that they're if the light problem or if it's not. Well, and we may and we may turn them straight out there because that'll give us we don't have much space. There's not much foot space, especially for me up here. Yeah. So I kind of have to be turned this way. I can turn. Yeah. Once we get this back out. Yeah. We once turn, we look out from the yeah. corner. Yeah. I think I think that's all. We can do. Yeah, I think they're in the 
I start reading here, um, it is uh, Doug's birthday, so if you see Doug today, wish him a happy birthday. <laughs> Sorry, Doug. Uh, please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for this building that we can come worship you. Father, we just pray that we're present where our feet are. We can focus on your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today, we're reading from the LSB, Psalm 8. It's the Psalm of David. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established. What is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. All glory be to God. What is in a name? Names, obviously, are very important to our culture, very important to our daily lives. It should seem obvious why a name is so important. A name by itself gives us a way to refer to a person, rather than saying this lady over here or this guy over there or the other man that lives down the block. It gives us a way to signify whom or who we are talking about. If we didn't have names, our lives would devolve quickly into absurdity. We couldn't communicate effectively, either talking or writing. Names tell us about our identity. Uh, they tell us where we come from. They tell us our, or to somebody else, our origin story. They tell us about the family to which we belong, the family to which we came from, whether it is good or bad. When we get married, names change. They signify a combining of families, of assuming names and being brought into another family. Hands given in marriage and names taken in marriage. This is also part of the story of names. There is a particular example of a story, a of a name, a name from history, a name we find in Scripture, and we'll see if you could guess.
who this person is. He was described as the divine Messiah. In poem, he, they would refer to it, behold the man, behold the promised one. You know him, a son of God, predestined to power, to restore the golden age. His empire will swell beyond the Gamorants and the Indians, over territory, further than the stars of the Zodiac, this Messiah's empire will go, and beyond the yearly course of the sun. Do you know who this man was? It was a name who, when it was uttered, they believed that it represented peace, order, and salvation. That this name represented hope and prosperity. A name that in the time of great division gave unity to those who believed in him. That this name that we find in Scripture was to be the ruler of all. And his name was Augustus Caesar. You see, Augustus Caesar was originally, his name was Octavius Caesar. He was Julius Caesar's nephew. And he would become Julius Caesar's adopted son. Julius Caesar, who was thought to be the one who would who would bring unity to the Roman Empire during a time of great civil war and strife, was murdered. Brutus and Cassius were the chief plotters of that murder that occurred. But Octavius Caesar, his adopted son, stepped up to the plate. He, through murderous intentions and whatnot, brought unity to Rome. He ascended into power around 27 B.C. Or I should say, excuse me, 31 B.C. And by 27 B.C., he was given the name Augustus. That name which meant exalted one. That, one, that name that meant the name greater than all other names. That name who people saw salvation in. That name of a man who would rule the Roman Empire for 40 plus years in a time of great peace and prosperity. It certainly wasn't the name you were thinking when I read off the descriptions of those names, of who he was. But this was what was associated with him. That his success was so great that he would inaugurate the period of time of single, single supreme emperor rule in the Roman Empire. He would probably become what is referred to as the greatest emperor that Rome ever had. He was the one that brought peace, prosperity, protection, and unity to Rome. And he died in around 14 A.D. If you were to turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 1, you would find these words. Luke 2, verse 1. Now, 
It happened that in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus for a census to be taken of all the inhabited earth. There he is, right from our scripture. The man I just described to you. The man who took the name that meant exalted one. The man who would be worshipped as a god. A name that was associated with greatness and power. We, however, today will be be discussing an even greater name. A name that is above all other names. A name which would give comfort to those who believe in him. And a name that will strike fear into the hearts of those who do not believe. We would find in Psalm 8, in the opening part of that, that this psalm is written to the choir director. Uh, According to the giddith, or played on the giddith, it can either mean a style of playing of music or an instrument upon which the music is played, and it's a psalm of David. Uh, We do not know the exact time and period of which this was written. It is certainly not necessarily linked to the previous psalm we preached on last week. But it is a psalm of praise to the Lord, to Yahweh. As Eric read from the Legacy Standard translation of the Bible, the Lord is translated correctly as Yahweh in this work. The holy name of a holy God. This psalm of praise We could set our hearts and we could set our minds by thinking of Psalm 81.1 when we look at this particular psalm to set our hearts in place on what it means. 81.1 would say this, Sing for joy to God our strength. Make a loud shout to the God of Jacob. Verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Yahweh, our Lord. We could preach for weeks just on this. It is tempting to do just that. To give great honor to the name of the Lord, Yahweh. This God that David knows, that David knows from his history, that David knows intimately for how God has acted in his life, Yahweh, the name, denotes his character, denotes all that he is and encompasses. A name not granted from somewhere else, but a name that is his alone. A name that solely speaks to himself, is not from any other family, is not given from any other place. The Tetragrammaton, as it's referred to, four letters that we represent in our scripture as Y-H-W-H. The single name that is above any name that can be uttered. It is the name of the Lord, the name of the I Am. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Exodus 3, verse 14. This is 
when Moses meets the Lord. And in verse 13 of that chapter, it says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am about to come to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? The name of God is important. Moses needs to know this name, the name that was never uttered to the patriarchs before him. You must tell me your name, Lord, so that I could tell them who you are because your name identifies who you are. We could recall that in Israel, that, that, that at this time, under Egyptian slavery, that there were multiple gods with multiple names. Ra, of course, was the sun god that they worshipped in Egypt. So it was important that they that Moses were able to take back something to the people. Who are you? What is your name? And God replies in this manner. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Now if we were to look at this in the Hebrew, we would find out that this is in the first person referring to himself. I am who I am. I am that causes all to be. There is none before me and there will be none after me. I am who I am. That is the best description you will get from me. And then if we look a little further in verse 15, it says, And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus ye shall say to the sons of Israel, now that name in the third person that we get Yahweh from, in the Hebrew, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. The same God who they worshipped is the same God who is sending Moses to them. No different God. His name is Yahweh. First uttered here to them, to Moses. Look in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God further, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am that I am. This name uttered over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. This name that encompasses the entirety of his being. A name that just points to the indescribable nature of who he is. A name that says, unlike you and me who have come from another person, that there is none like him. A name that says that He is the cause of everything. A name that is rooted in the to be bird, bird, right? Is where it's at. It is I am. That is the sole best description of who God is. I am. When they, so when they ask, He will say that He is Yahweh, I am that I am, that He is, that He is. His name is forever and has always been. Before time and the future beyond time. 
there is no end to the name Yahweh. The name is majestic. The name that it says there in the Psalms, that majestic nature of the name, how majestic is your name in all the earth, that would mean that it is incomparable, that that name encompasses weight, power, splendor, strength, vigor. It is a name of unending authority. And, in, and to a degree, incomprehensible in nature. As an aside, you would look, if you were to look at the history of the Jewish nation, you would find that Yahweh, the name that we have in the scripture here in the LSB, is, it was pronounced up until about the second temple time. It's generally assumed that around the second temple time, for whatever reason, they decided not to produce, pronounce Yahweh anymore. Uh, there is no biblical reason for that, but they started to refer to it instead of Yahweh as the Lord. It is fully and entirely correct to refer to the Lord as Yahweh. And it says how majestic that name of great strength and vigor and authority and power. I am that I am. And it says, who displays your splendor above the heavens? We can think of this as a rhetorical question. Who displays your splendor? He alone is the one that displays his splendor in creation. There is none like Yahweh. He is alone and holy other than everything else. He is not like us. He is triune in nature. And we should find great comfort in that name. Because it is the same name to which Jesus refers to himself in John chapter 4. If you would take a moment and turn there, you are familiar with the story of the woman at the well. John chapter 4. And after he has spoken with her for a while, has pointed out the sin in her life, she is there at the midday. And if we would look to verse 25, it says this, the woman said to him, said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will declare all things to us. So even in her aberrant belief that she has in the Samaritan religion, she knows that Messiah is coming. The promised one is coming. Messiah, the anointed one, is coming. And Jesus says these words to her in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Almost a direct translation of the Greek translation of Exodus, which we just read. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. I am that one. I am Yahweh. And that should give us great comfort because the God who saves is also the Son who saves. The second person in the Trinity. Jesus is the name, the name that gives hope, the name that gives salvation, 
This is the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But David certainly isn't done, and although we could certainly camp there for the rest of the day, but David has more to say about this Yahweh, this God, the only true God that there is. David, who looks forward to the time that the Messiah will come, says in verse 2 of Psalm 8, From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. We can synopsize that quickly and just say that God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the unexpected things of the world to save. God has done things the way He desires to do them, not the way that man expects them to be done. There is no strength in the desires of men. There is no strength in their plans because they certainly wither away like grass and the flowers of the field. The men that put their hope, the men and women that put their hope in the things of this earth that will turn to rust or be eaten by the moss. And they put such great hope in those things, yet they are not sustainable. They don't look to Yahweh that is forever. It is only the strength of the Lord that sustains. It only finds residence in the will of the Lord. And this is what this verse is about. Uh, The author is looking to the apparent weakness of infants to demonstrate the Lord's strength. Notice how often God brings victory through seemingly impossible things. And we can put an asterisk here and say, Look how God brings salvation through the wickedness of the cross. An unexpected thing. The Israelites were not chosen because of who they are, but because they were the weakest or smallest of all nations. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, that's Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. If we bleed into verse 8, but because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, Yahweh brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We know from Isaiah 40, verse 31, a verse also familiar to many of you, 40, verse 31. Unfortunately, you see it on 
binders and coffee cups. But nonetheless, it is a great verse. It says, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That those who put their faith in Yahweh, though they are commended to a bed of sickness for the rest of their life, can have strength in the hope that he provides in the life that will come in the hereafter, in the resurrection of the body. Amen. You see, God in Psalm 147.10 says, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of the man. This is not where he finds his strength at. He uses, in 1 Corinthians 1.27, He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Those unexpected things to bring about His salvation. We should find great hope when we read a passage like this in Psalm 8, 2. That from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, from the weakest of all people, you have established your strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. That through the weakness of man, God is strong. We'll take the next two verses as we change uh, as, as David changes his, his, his tenor of what he speaks about, he has, he has glorified God in a doxological way here that he has he's taught to glorify the Lord in these first two verses. And now we talk about creation that he goes into in verses 3 and 4. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you remember him in the son of man that you care for him? These two verses seemingly pointing to the paradox of existence. Notice how David looks outwardly to the heavens. Even without a telescope, he can see the vastness of creation. As a young man, as a shepherd underneath the stars of the sky and seeing the greatness that is there. Any of you that have had the distinct pleasure in being in a place far away from human light and have viewed the Milky Way unblinded by the lights of man, cannot help but be amazed to see it. David would be well familiar with that. He could walk out at any time and see the stars at night from his palace. And when he were to look up at the stars and the moon of heaven and see those things, I, I see the work of your fingers showing the immensity of Yahweh, that these mere planets are just mere playthings or those things that He has created from His fingertips. That God is so much greater than even the universe can hold. That He is beyond all of creation. He says, I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in their place, in their orbits, in their locations, 
that you have all done this by your great plan. And David, when I look to those things and I seek to comprehend what is going on there, the fact that even the sun, which is so far away, which he could not even realize at that time at how far away, but billions of miles away, yet to stare at it will blind a man. That when he considers what the hand of God has made in comparison to the size of man, it makes no sense. Why would God choose to interact with man? Why would God choose to remember man? I would say here that this would be a great place to remember that God does not set creation into motion and then walk away. He does not spin it like a top and then observe it from far off. Colossians 1 tells us that everything is in place and held in place through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second member of the Godhead. That everything in creation is attended to by Yahweh, including ourselves. That Yahweh hasn't given life to us and forgotten us. But God is true to His words as in Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And when David says, what is man that you remember him? And the son of man that you care for him? I look to the skies, God, and I look to the heavens, Yahweh, and I see the moon and the stars and I see the sun rise and see the sun set. And I look out on the vastness of creation of what I can see in the plains and the fields of Israel. And I wonder why it is that you even consider us how small we are compared to even the vastness of this planet that we live on. But God does. But God is concerned. Job 7.17 says, What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? Or Isaiah 51.12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. I am the God that comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? The full comfort as Isaiah considers these passages or considers the nature and being of Yahweh that Isaiah, Isaiah hears from the Lord and says that I alone and the one who has established you, who comforts you, why do you fear man? Because man, the best that man can do is kill you. I am the one that holds life and death in the palms of my hands, the same hands that created the universe, the same hands that carved the pathways of the stars and the planets. The same way, the same hand that set out before them the cloth of the universe and set those stars in place that we could view them. The same God 
that creates the most beautiful rose that grows in a distant forest that no one will see and it withers and dies. For his glory he does this. But God, but God has chosen to remember man. He has and does consider man. He has not only rescued men in the past, but he continues to rescue them from sin to this day. God has attended a man and continues to attend a man. He has paid attention to the plight of man. He has not left us alone. He has searched men out and continues to search men out and bring them into salvation. Look to Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Exodus chapter 3, verse 16. Notice the words that uh, God is saying to Moses. And it says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say, that, uh, say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, Notice these words, I indeed care about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. You see, God never lost track of the Israelites in slavery. He never forgot about them when they were in slavery. In fact, he told Abraham that they would be in slavery for 400 plus years. That he would not forget them. That the sins of the Amorites must come to full. And then he would save them. He has not forgotten because God's memory is perfect. God provides and remembers Luke 1, verse 68. Luke 1, verse 68. Zechariah's prophecy, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people. The Lord does not forget. The Lord remembers, has remembered man, has never not remembered man, has never forgotten man. And then in verse 5, Five, six, seven, and eight. We'll deal with together. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea whatever passes through the pass of the sea. God has created man and given him responsibility. God has created man and put creation forth before him. God has created man and told him that he, that man should rule 
the creation that God created. In fact, we are part of God's sovereign plan to steward creation, to care for creation, to manage creation. That when we see the fall of man, what happens there in those verses, 18, uh, Genesis 3, 18, 19, 20, so forth, where it says, what will happen that the toil that they have in the land will now be beset by thorns, Right? Creation flourishes as man flourishes in stewarding creation. Creation is better off with man in the garden than without him. That's why we see that second creation story at the end of the Scripture. When we see the life-giving trees and the river that flows through the new city, the new Jerusalem. That God was not, that man was not just created to enjoy the fruits of creation, but he was created to manage that creation. And he was created in God's image to do so. Genesis 1.26 tells us these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then Genesis 2.20. And man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. That man sits, and we see in that passage of Psalms, of Psalm 8, that man sits in that unique place between the divinity in heaven, of the divine creatures created in heaven, and those creatures that are created lower than man on earth. Almost in a mediatorial role that he has been created. And Christ himself steps into that mediatorial role for us, to save us, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, Hebrews 1, chapter 1, if you would turn there. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed, appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Jesus is God. Worship is only appropriate to God. 
Worship to Jesus is the same worship that is given to the divine creator who is Christ himself, found as one of the members of the Trinity. See to it, brother. Oh, excuse me. Skip the page. And the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds, wing, the winds, and his ministers flaming fire? But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will wear out like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet? This is the description of our Lord and Savior. That He is the one who mediates for us, much as we mediate for the earth and steward the earth. He is the one who mediates for us in this role before God the Father. He is the one who provides His righteousness for us, who clothes us in His righteousness. That in God's great and sovereign plan, He has allowed man to steward His creation. And even in the sinfulness that man has done, turning away from God, God has provided salvation for him through His Son, the second person of the Godhead, in the giving of the Holy Spirit to us. So when we answer that question that David has, who is it that you would care for him? The only answer I have is that God has cared for us through His Son and provided a way of salvation through His Son for us. That even the greatness of God who is, has, has created the universe, that even in the smallness of man, that we are somehow different than all other creation. That the life-giving breath of God was breathed into man and that we are alive through what God has done. That when David points out these things that we are given rule over, that we are given dominion over, I can't help but think that even, I believe it's in James where we talk about how that man is even able to control uh, a 1,500-pound, 2,000-pound horse with a little bridle. That God in His greatness has created us in His image. That He has not forgotten us. That He has not forgotten that we are found outside of His holiness. That there is no way that we can work towards being back in right relationship with, a, with him by ourselves, that he has a, remembered and has attended to man, that he has done this for us. And then when David says, and 
Psalm 8, verse 9, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He is declaring that there is none like God and none like what he does. He is fully complete and unique. Deuteronomy 33, 26 would say, There is none like the God of Jeshurun, who rides heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. There is none like our God. There is none who is provided like He has done. Job 11.7 would say, Can you discover, discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The point David threw up his hands when he looked at the heavens and wondered, why us? And yet he knows that God has remembered and has attended to man. And that the majestic, awesome, authoritarian power of his name. You see that our salvation is not in the ways of man. You see, Caesar Augustus, who was claimed to be the savior of the world, who was claimed to bring unity, who was worshipped as a god, died, was put in a tomb. His flesh deteriorated. His bones wasted away to dust. And he returned to the earth. We, on the other hand, worship a Savior who is a true Savior who when the women went to the tomb, the tomb was empty. That there was no body. That there were no bones. There was no person there. To which the angels replied to the women as they looked there, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You see, Caesar Augustus was not a god. Jesus is the God-man. Caesar Augustus was not a creator. Jesus is the creator. Caesar Augustus was merely a man. Jesus was, is both God and man. Caesar, was, Caesar Augustus was not a man who could save. Jesus Christ is the only one who can save. Because God is a God who has remembered me. Who has remembered the state that we're in. Who has remembered that we must pay the debt for sin. And He has provided the means in which that debt is paid. Through Jesus Christ on the cross. It is the name of Jesus that is the true name above all names. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 18. A very telling passage at the arrest of Jesus. John chapter 18. Verse 3. 
Judas then, if we were to stop there, we would say Judas was a man who put his hope in men. Not in Jesus, whom he was with for three years. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons, coming to arrest Jesus at the garden on the Mount of Olives. In verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying them, betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. There are approximately 500 to 1,000 soldiers that are there at this time. And when Jesus declares who he is, they all hit the ground. This does not happen for a man. This only happens for Jesus. Philippians 2. Tells us more about Jesus and his name. Philippians 2.5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What is in this name? Salvation and salvation alone. Not in the name like an Augustus, like Augustus Caesar who's dead in the grave and has disappeared into the dust, but a saving Savior, a true Savior in Jesus. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is salvation in no one else. There is none other. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. As Jesus said in Mark, repent and believe in me. Repent and believe in the work that I will do. Repent and believe in me in the work that I have done on the cross, that it is finished. 
And I would urge you today to know the Lord God, to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that it is a majestic name above all other names, that there is none like it. That at some point in time, you will either be on your knees worshiping God, or you'll be on your knees awaiting full judgment from Him. I urge you to repent and believe in Jesus this day. Father God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the Psalms of David. Thank You for the, all the Psalms that speak to us. Uh, in uh, Give us such picturesque language that give us the words that we don't necessarily have to describe you and your ways and the work that you have done and the work that you continue to do. We are so thankful that you have remembered us and that you do attend to us, that you have provided salvation for us, that, that all those that are here today will, that know Jesus can be assured of their salvation. And we would ask that any that do not know Jesus, that they would come to know you today, that their hearts would be open that the Holy Spirit would be given, that they would know the name above all other names, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You would join us while we worship this song.